This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author David Friend discusses his new book, The Naughty 90s. Then our own Rose Fox asks why romance novels aren't turned into movies. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. There's a lot happening. The summer doldrums are over. We've been waiting for this. We have, and and it is finally here. We have a new number one two, and three on the hardcover fiction list. Uh, It's pretty exciting times. Number one is Secrets in Death by J.D. Robb, the 45th novel in her Eve Dallas series Mm. set in a near future New York. And uh, we say this one is very entertaining. Eve is having a a drink at a bar owned by her husband when a gossip reporter comes staggering in, soaked in blood, and dies at her feet. So lots of drama, excitement, and uh, we say that uh, Rob fleshes out the main action with such tantalizing puzzles as the reasons for the gossip columnist's extensive plastic surgery and also the location of the hidey hole she must have kept. Rob continues to impress with her ability to make the same murder mystery formula fresh. They have an announced first printing of 750,000 copies in hardcover and uh, it's well on its way with uh, first week sales of 29,000 copies according to Bookscan. Wow, so, great. Uh, very, very impressive. I, I she, she's just an amazing writer. Mm. I don't know how she does it, but she yeah. does every time. And uh, number two, Vince Flynn, Enemy of the State, a Mitch Rapp novel. And, uh, this is written by Kyle Mills in the, the style of Vince Flynn, uh, contributing to the, the Mitch Rapp series. And this is Mills's third addition to, uh, the late Flynn series. We say that it reinvigorates the well-worn Middle East conspiracy thriller plot and that series fans and newcomers alike will watch in wonder as Mitch, Mitch executes a clever plan that leads to an explosive climax. Mm. That's at number two. And at number three, another thriller, A Legacy of Spies by John le Carré, obviously a venerable name in the thriller field. We give this a starred review and uh, say so that uh, George Smiley returns in this stunning spy novel from MWA Grandmaster le Carré. Uh, Smiley was last seen in a book in 1991. So uh, it's very, very exciting for a lot of people that le Carré is coming back to the series after right. so long. And uh, center stage is actually taken by uh, Smiley's devoted assistant, Peter Gam, uh, who has retired to Brittany, but is summoned to London to answer some questions. And uh, we say this is both a r- riveting reprise of the Smiley novels and a new articulation of Le Carre's theme, that spying is as morally bankrupt as the ideologies it serves. There are allusions to lots of his past books, but those who don't know them won't be left out, given the power of the storytelling and Le Carre's in inimitable prose. And uh, he's, we say that he can convey a character in a sentence, land an emotional insight in the smallest phrase, and demolish an ideology in a paragraph. Mm. So 
very powerful, very positive review, um, certainly getting a lot of attention out there. And uh, all of these books are really right up one against one another in terms of sales as well. So a banner week for thriller fans. Wow, fantastic. Moving down the list a little bit at uh, number seven is The Western Star by Greg Johnson. Uh, so he pays homage to Agatha Christie in this cleverly plotted novel, the 13th book in the Walt Longmire series, which takes place in both the past and in, 19, in 1972 and in the present. Uh, we gave it a starred review. Uh, this is in 1972. The Walt is, uh, at this time, a deputy sheriff, uh, recently returned Vietnam War vet, and he goes to the Wyoming Sheriff's annual, uh, the Wyoming Sheriff's Association annual excursion across the state in a steam train. And in his pocket is a copy of Murder on the Orient Express. So <laughs> nice. uh, we already have a sense of what might happen. And then in the present day, uh, Walt is trying to uh, battle against the release of a serial killer for personal reasons that will catch readers by surprise. Uh, witty dialogue abounds, and Johnson winds up the whodunit with a solution that Christie could never have imagined. And he's doing a 15-city author tour to, wow, uh, great. to accompany this book. And a little bit below that... Uh, number 19, The Golden House by Salman Rushdie. We gave this also a star. We said it's an ambitious and rewarding novel about a mysterious billionaire and his three adult sons who changed their names and moved to New York in an attempt to reinvent themselves after tragedy. And it spans the years from 2000, early 2009, all the way up to the present moment, a uh, very dramatic and shifting time in right. American politics and history. And we say this is a distinctively rich epic of the immigrant experience in modern America, where no amount of money or self-abnegation can truly free a family from the sins of the past. Wow. And any book by Salman Rushdie is cause to celebrate. Sure. And, yeah. Uh, this is definitely a big one. And it's been a while. It has been a while. At number 21, just below that, is Sing, Unburied Sing by Jesmyn Ward. Another starred review book. All the big books are coming out this week. This is it. This is it. Uh, we say Ward t tells the story of three generations of a struggling Mississippi family in this astonishing novel. And uh, it, it opens with a 13-year-old receiving some wisdom from his grandmother on her deathbed. Uh, and she says she'll be just waiting on the other side of the door with everybody else that's gone before. Mm. But uh, when she's gone, uh, he has to figure out how to cope with life without her uh, while his uh, his mother is snorting cocaine and his father is about to be released from prison. So uh, lots of family drama happening here. We say that uh, throughout the novel are beautifully crafted moments of tenderness, but it's also a harrowing drive across a muggy landscape haunted by hatred. And uh, the the dead make several appearances, including uh, his mm. murder, the boy's murdered uncle. And uh, no one in the family is particularly surprised to see them interfering in the world of the living. And their stories are deeply affecting in no small part, we say, because of Ward's brilliant writing and compassionate eye. So uh, wow. very exciting publication there. And uh, down at number 25, The Child Finder by Rene Denfeld. Uh, we say this is an intense novel in which an investigator seeks missing children in the remote reaches of an Oregon forest. And uh, she can't remember anything 
in her life before running in terror through a dark strawberry field when she was a child. And now she's in her late 20s and uh, carries the burdens of a solitary career finding missing children. Uh, we say that Naomi is a broken but ethical protagonist who always holds out hope for the children yet to be found, the adults searching for missing loved ones, and herself as she tries to overcome past traumas. And the conclusion, we say, will leave readers breathless. So uh, basically, if you like drama, action, and uh, biting your nails... This is the week for you. Yeah, this is um, uh, you know quite a few, and and as you know, as you mentioned, quite a few stars, uh, mm -hmm. starred, starred reviews on there. Uh, of the nonfiction, we've got quite a few. I won't hit on all of them, but I will just talk about a, a few. And uh, I've, I've been saying the last few weeks we've had a cookbook that's popped up on the general nonfiction week for the last several weeks. This is the first time it has not. So uh, the first uh, highest debut is at number five, Kurt Anderson. The book is called. Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. Then after that, we have uh, HD, uh, HGTV Sensation, The Property Brothers. It takes two, our story, um, and these, this is Jonathan Drew Scott. Um, this is a uh, heavily illustrated book uh, about how they got their, uh, their start on HGTV. TV takes them from a young age on. Uh, we have a starred review at number 13 uh, of a book called The Last Arrow, Save Nothing for the Next Life by Erwin Raphael uh, McManus. McManus, who wrote a book called The Barbarian Ways, the founder of Mosaic, which is a Los Angeles uh, Christian community, was putting the finishing touches on this book in December 16 when he was diagnosed with cancer prognosis that left him terrified. And over here, uh, the author read over his book's message of emptying everything one has in this life to live as a vessel of God and his exhortation to live without fear or regret. And he was left grief-stricken as he imagined the end of his life. We say Christian readers may rediscover the power of a robust belief in God's power in McManus's uh, passionate words. So it's the one thing we have had a Christian-themed book on the list for the past several weeks, and that's one of them, and it's a starred review. Uh, number 15, we have uh, the team of uh, Jeff Ward and Ken Burns, and this is the uh, Vietnam War and Intimate History. This is the companion volume uh, to the 18-hour, 10-part PBS documentary. We say anyone looking for an expansive overview of Vietnam will find much to admire here. Number 17, When Violence is the Answer, Learning How to Do What It Takes When Your Life is at Stake by Tim Larkin. We have a couple books here. We have not reviewed one of Stephen Colbert's Midnight Confessions at number 20. Uh, it's an illustrated book. And then we have another illustrated book, Picturing Prince, an Intimate Portrait by Steve Park. Uh, and these photos have been in magazines and newspapers this last week and uh, thus boosting this book up to number 20. At number 25, we have uh, a book that I was really excited about, Coming to My Senses, The Making of a Counterculture Cook. This is the memoir of Alice Waters, who is the uh, founder of Chez Panisse, a uh, cafe in Berkeley, California. And um, we, we say that she offers a uh, personal view of her early life in what is an intimate and colorful memoir. Her anecdotes and her descriptions of friends and customers, you know, many of whom were, you know, they were filmmakers, artists, and, and prominent thinkers of the time, bring the era and the restaurant to the mind's eye in vibrant detail. And this was a big institution started in the 1960s. Happy to see it on the bestseller list. And that's what we have. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, David Friend tells us about the sex scandals and changing attitudes of the 1990s. We'll be right back. I'm Vanessa Panto, the author of The Gangs All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got David Friend on the line. His new book is The Naughty 90s, The Triumph of the American Libido. David, so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So we're talking about the history of a lubricious decade, the 1990s. Uh, I think when people sort of think about the, the naughtiest decades of the 20th century, that's maybe not the one that comes to mind. What led you to, to focus on this um, rather than, say, the, the, the more familiar excesses of the 60s and 70s? Well, the 20s were pretty wild, too. True? Um, no, I, I really, I, you know, I'll, there was a coming of age of the people who were in the free love 70s. And by the 90s, they'd grown up and their value system, the, the, the values of the counterculture had really become the values of the culture. And so I was seeing, as I was living through the 90s and then looking back thereafter, this sort of sense of um, boomers having taken over in Washington for the first time in Hollywood, on Madison Avenue. And here was this um, sort of percolating sexuality in the culture, uh, this sort of sense that we'd, everything had moved a little bit left. Um, there was uh, this, uh, what, you, what was called at the time, a culture war going on between the, the far right and mainstream America and really the values of left-wing America, though Clinton called himself centrist. And you really had this um, you know, this new thing called the internet that was, you know, sort of sexualized with people having these chats all in the early, early days of the World Wide Web, which started in 1992. You had um, a sexual overlay almost on culture as you had tabloid shows and tabloid coverage all the time and 24-7 news for the first time with Fox and MSNBC coming aboard to have a, a war really with CNN, which had been around for a while, but here you had a 24-7 news cycle. So people really wanted to see public officials, personalities, celebrities, and private individuals were being, their, their sex lives were being studied and dissected. And we really had to confront this as a culture, and, and especially in the decade after AIDS, when people began to be to, to talk about, I mean, after the the uh, discovery of AIDS and the outbreak of the epidemic, where people were forced to really, uh, throughout the 80s, look at address sexuality in very real ways at their homes, at the, and at, over the dinner table, at churches, at schools. So I think there was this, um, um, uh, this these undercurrents in Purit otherwise Puritan America puritanical America that began to arise and, and you saw this in, in a sort of scandal-ridden culture. Was there a point in that decade that, that just kind of got you started on this? You know, it's weird. I I, I, I was raising two kids who, who you know, uh, who my daughter was doing sit-ups every day because she wanted ashboard, washboard abs like Britney Spears. You know, she, she, she was a preteen and and uh, she wanted to get belly rings and, uh, you know, wear these these low-slung jeans. And my 
everyone was having. And, and my son was playing these massive multiplayer video games with late at night on the internet. I don't know what the heck he was doing. And it just sort of seemed like as an apparent, like as, you know, as a parent in the nineties, I was saying, boy, the culture is moving so fast and they're getting bombarded with sexual imagery, imagery from MTV to elsewhere. So that was happening. And then I sort of was making a transition. I was at Life Magazine. I was the director of photography there. It was here, here I was at a middle American, uh, middle of the road, quasi-conservative, picture-driven general interest magazine. And then Graydon Carter hired me in 1998 to come aboard Vanity Fair. This was a picture-driven general interest magazine, but it was really to the left. It was really cosmopolitan and it was urbane and it was much uh, a much different kettle of fish than Life magazine was. And I think that's what the culture was doing, shifting. To, it was shifting to a more open, progressive, and um, uh, or a majority of the people in the culture were, were, were taking on the values that Vanity Fair was discussing unless the quote-unquote family values that uh, were being you know, would might have been embraced by by a Life magazine. So I was making that pivot uh, at, at a similar time. And the day I started the job, Graydon Carter called me in his office because he knew I used to do a lot of, we worked together at Life for a while, and he knew I used to do a lot of exclusives when I would, as a news reporter and a news editor and then the picture editor. And he said, let's go see if we can get to Monica Lewinsky. And in 22 days, I had set up. I managed to set up this exclusive for Vanity Fair with Herb Ritz photographing Monica Lewinsky during the, uh, the days of the scan, quote unquote, the scandal with uh, Bill Clinton, or you know, revealing that they'd had a long-term relationship going on. So I wasn't in Kansas anymore, and I think that's where I was during that period. So uh, we're talking, as you mentioned, Bill Lewin Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky. Um, he also had this uh, relationship with Jennifer Flowers that came out, and and this was all still being regarded as quite a scandal, uh, even in in this sort of maybe more progressive, more uh, sexually open decade. And there was also a lot of backlash against very sexual films. Uh, I've, I vividly remember the discussion around uh, Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction. Mm -hmm. And so how, how was this clash, this culture clash playing out where you know, maybe you weren't in Kansas anymore, but Kansas was still in Kansas and didn't necessarily like the way everything else was going? Well, it's still being played out. You know, so, so what you had was this, this, this war that was being set up. The key issues were not necessarily what was going on 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 the movie screen or on your what today on your smartphone. The key wars w were should, should there be marriage equality in the nineties? You had for the first time uh, a, a state Vermont that allowed same sex couples not only to marry but to be recognized by the state. And it could not be changed by the federal government. That would change under the Defense of Marriage Act and, and others afterwards. But today, it's the law of the land. The other war that was being fought was for for um, a woman's right to choose. And for the first time 
in the in that decade, more women, 56, more Americans, 56% of them, believed in reproductive choice and uh, and were in favor of the right to an abortion, even though it was the law of the land to, to uh, any woman had the right for to ha- have an abortion. We're still having that fight right now because of the uh, the forces in uh, state and local governments uh, and laws that are going through the courts right now. So there was this real uh, battle, and 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 you had a lot of violence at abortion clinics uh, and health centers throughout. Uh, the 90s with the first murders, although in the 80s you'd had a lot of uh, uh, attacks and, and a lot of confrontation. It wasn't until the 90s that people who actually, six people were actually, were uh, nurses, doctors, and healthcare workers were actually shot and killed by uh, members of the of the far uh, of the uh, anti-abortion movement. So. Those, you know, the LGBT rights is that, you know, now we, it's, it's, it's again, the law of the land, but you, we're, there's still a rear guard action that we're fighting and, and had been fighting then with the death of Brandon Natina, uh, a, a trans, um, uh, man who, who had, uh, uh, who, who was killed early on in the decade and then became the basis of the movie The Crying Game. Uh, and boys don't cry. The, I'm sorry. I said a crime. Boys don't cry. And then um, the death of uh, Matthew Shepard, mm-hmm. who uh, who was uh, crucified in Wyoming uh, in, in a hate crime. And within a couple of months, you had the hate crimes bill that we now have, and we're now talking about again. Should we be strengthening the hate crimes bill in the aftermath of Charlottesville? So. I think we're still fighting those fights, and I think it's, um, you know, it's still a very much a divided nation. And I, I was a teenager in the '90s, so I was sort of seeing this from the the opposite perspective from what you were. And I remember there was a write up in the newspaper of my about my school nurse because she dared to have condoms in the the bathroom of the nurse's office where any student could come take one. So teen sexuality was also really being legislated and discussed and there were many opinions about it as well yes there was a real change in at the beginning that rolling stone did a piece on this and you're, you're right there was this this sense of well you know when should condoms be handed out when should needles be handed out um uh the, the, there was a there was a sea change uh, at the beginning of the decade according to rolling stone there was zero um um, lesbian and gay societies in high schools. There were just none in uh, either local or nationally. I think by the end of the decade, there were th- some 300 where people could come out to their peers and feel they had a safe place to be themselves. Um, this was a real shift in the 90s where there was beginning to be this acceptance of one sexual orientation among young people, the other change in the 90s, of course, big one, was hooking up. People had done that a bit in the 80s, but, but now dating was on the wane, and you had really people who, who were hanging out among friends in groups, and, and there, were more, more, there was more opportunity for um, sexual exploration sexual exploration and there was less you know sort of sense of commitment it was sort of a uh, and I think we're 
we 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 went through that period of of um uh, uh for, for quite a while and now what we're seeing and I think this just came out in the Atlantic last month a wonderful article about a, a sort of a, a sea change in 2008 when the economy changed and adolescents and post adolescents uh when they'd left college or co- would come back and live at home because the job market was so difficult for young people uh young adults and you also had a breakthrough where 50 in 2008 where 50 percent of all um young people now had smartphones Mm-hmm. And what you had was this isolation, and people were falling asleep with their phones and wake. And it's true today, waking up with their phones, and they're more isolated. Their, their conversations and their connections with people are virtual, and not uh, they're not really gathering as they had in the '90s and previous generations. And there is a real has been a real. There's a, been a decline in in sexual activity, a decline in. Um, Dating even further, a decline in, in really human interaction um, uh, among uh, people who, in other in other times, might uh, begin the beginning of, of human intimacy. So I think we're. I hate it sounds a little depressing, but it's really a. I think um, a devolution in how young people can uh, can understand how to connect with others. As good, as important as the internet is, important as these devices are, and important as as uh, to, to fostering communication, there's also sort of stunted growth and delayed adolescence, prolonged adolescence. So, going back to the '90s, what was mm-hmm. the turning point in the '80s that kind of led to a lot of these developments? You know, that's a hard one. I think it was probably Ronald Reagan. Uh, and probably the triumph, really, of that we're still seeing today of um, the values of deregulation and an agenda that had been started by Barry Goldwater, possibly in the '60s, when we re- there was a sense that you know, wait, we need to be more conservative. We need to have less government. We need to have less regulation and rules, and 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 yes, you know there was this, you know, in in the late eighties, the fall of of communism um, in in the Eastern Bloc. So I think a lot of those changes were were triggered other changes that would happen in the nineties, and there was this pendulum swing then for this young progressive person, to Bill Clinton, but also Al Gore, and also. Come '92, after the Anita Hill uh, hearings with uh, Clarence Thomas hearings, at which Anita Hill uh, spoke about sexual harassment at the at the workplace in the in in the Supreme Court nominees hearings, that many many women for the first time were were running for office, and there was a lot of change. Then I think it, part of it was a counter reaction to. The, the the sort of overreach on the part of the right during this long period of the 80s. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. 
PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with David Friend, author of The Naughty 90s, and we're talking about various events that precipitated uh, uh, the naughtiness of the 90s. One thing you talk about is uh, the media and uh, throughout the book, what role did media play during this time? Well, you know, we've talked a little bit here about the importance of the internet and television, but I, I think maybe the key, two key things happened. I think in the 70s, you had three things that occurred. One was the established, there was this tabloid war that started when Rupert Murdoch started the National Star, it was called it at the time, but the Star, which was then fighting with the uh, Inquirer. And there was, you know, scandals every week in nineteen in in the in the eighties, in the seventies. Um, this was quickly followed by Rupert Murdoch buying the New York Post, and the New York Post became this overheated scandal sheet. And then that model, which had come from Australia and the UK, was now repeated across the country. Also in the early seventies was this new phenomenon, People Magazine, a magazine about human personalities and celebrities, and this was so tawdry in people's mind. What was this? Well, it was really a lot of good journalism in People, but this was a new way to look at history and and current events was through the eyes of, of people. This was such a radical, crazy thing. And that whole tabloidism then grew in the 80s and then became part of television in the 90s. You had tabloid television. And I think it was Thomas Mallon, the novelist, who said, you know, used to be quoted by David Camp in a Vanity Fair article called The Tabloid Decade when he was writing about the 90s, that suddenly you had this era, this era in which this, the, the uh, gossip, which used to be in you know, a tabloid Newspapers used to be a smudgy ride, a smudgy read on the on the train while you're commuting, was now delivered to your home like a public utility, like water or electricity. You know, we'd get scandal all the time, twenty four seven, if we wanted it. So that was one thing. And then I think the 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 hard right was really I, I, in the book. I call them the four horsemen. Hard right. You had in four different media uh, mediums very different uh, powers on the right. One was uh, Rush Limbaugh, who was on the radio waves and became extremely important nationally at the end of the 80s and early 90s, and one of the one of the key anti-Clinton voices. Uh, this was his shtick, um, uh, and still is. The second you had uh, in, uh, in print, David Brock, who would write constantly about takedown pieces, which he now admits were virtually character assassinations of Anita Hale and Hillary Clinton and others. Uh, he's now working on the left instead of the right. Um, thirdly, you had Roger Ailes, and we've talked about Fox TV, but Fox News, uh, Fox News, it started in 1996 and rode the coattails of the Clinton-Lewinsky relationship to, to, to new heights and new profits for Fox News, and now has really become the uh, house organ of the Republican Party. And fourth, you had a guy in in a 
Trinka shop in, in CBS Trinka shop in Hollywood who was sending out this new newsletter in 96 called The Drudge Report. And he was really the first on the right to be able to effectively take this new medium, uh, the Internet, and conflate or confuse or in, in, inflate uh, gossip and put it cheek by jowl with news items and so you'd have these opinion pieces and these these pieces from the from you know very suspect uh, columnists and suspect websites and he led the way to what they now and from Breitbart onward so we're talking about the internet as the source of scandal. Uh, there was a, a lot of discussion about the internet as a source for pornography, immortalized in a song in the musical Avenue Q. And uh, there, there was, <laughs> I remember, right. a great deal of conversation about, at the time, how dangerous it was. Again, from my perspective as a teenager, um, I was hearing a lot about how dangerous it was that kids were going to have access to this stuff. How How does that sort of jibe with what you were talking about in more recent trends where people now see being on the internet as almost antithetical to sexual connection, to what you were calling human connection, though I don't know that those are necessarily the same thing. Yeah, I mean, why do you need, a, in the old days, you really did to, to understand what sexuality was about. You got your information from your peers, your four from older siblings or relatives or from parents or from uh, schools you, or, or you, you really did get it from live human beings or, or and from experimenting. Now the whole human smorgasbord of sexuality is available to people at too early an age and they don't understand what they're seeing and they don't and we as adults don't understand it either. It's just this all these crazy kinks it's for the first time in in this history of this human species, we can tap into any single sex act we want in a second, and we and we, we sort of decontextualize and dehumanize. So a lot of people learn their first uh, learn about intimate acts through uh, an inanimate object, and or through virtual representations of sexuality instead of. Um, you know the the real world and the real connections with people, and I think that has to necessarily color um, how people react in the real world. And and there's just and and, and it I think has led to a, a certain lack of intimacy, a lack of empathy, a la a a people who are people who are young people who, and, and and old who are more at sea about. Um, how to connect in in real time? They're they're concerned often about um, their own satisfaction and not those of others, and they're concerned more about sex than they are about love. And how does that jibe with the increased access for, for example, trans teenagers or queer teenagers who are in places where physically they might be isolated from community, but they can find it online? Well, that's one of the benefits. I mean, I do think that uh, you have you have information. This is one of the great things about the internet, from having information or ability to organize or to 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 um, you know everything from the Arab Spring to the communities you're talking about. So, yeah, I mean that's that's terrific. But I think 
the def- definition of sexuality in the 90s was different. It, there was much more of a binary choice. People were outed politically. They had to make a decision. In, you know, you are, you are gay. Why don't you say you are gay? You are straight. Why don't you say, why don't you make this? You know, we, people had to take sides in, in, when, in, in an era when when ignorance about sexuality was leading lead to death in many cases. Now there's a, we have this fluid sense of, of gender and of sexual identity, and it's a very healthy thing, and it's a very but it's a very complex thing. So having these communities um, it brings more uh, assistance and, and guidance in in in, in among people who are grappling with with uh, with finding out who they are. So, how did you go about researching a book about sex? You actually wrote a, a soapbox on this for PW, which uh, was very entertaining and included a, a great chance encounter with a great writer. Do you want to recap that for us here? Oh God, everybody reads PW, so maybe I should have to say <laughs> it on radio because everyone has read. No, thank you for re- re- referencing that. No, I, you know, I spent four years uh, researching and writing and reading and interviewing. I interviewed about 260 people for the book, and and then it took about three years to write it because I have a day job. You know, I'm working at Vanity Fair, and and uh, and and has had been for for I have been for the last 19 years, so. I needed to do it, but but what, right at the beginning of the process, my wife and I are standing online to see a movie. Uh, I think it was George Hamilton, the movie George Hamilton's. Fan, I forgot the movie. It was about his mother, and and so George had invited us, and uh, he's a friend of ours. And and it was at the Paris Theater here in New York, and we're standing on in the line, and it was standing next to uh, um, Gay Talese and his wife Nan, and. Famously, uh, Nan is just one of the great literary editors uh, in New York and gay, one of the great founders of the new journalism uh, in the 70s and and thereafter. And he'd written this book in the 70s uh, on um, called Thy Neighbor's Wife. And so this was a book that was exploring sexual in that decade. And there was a little parallel there. And my wife leaned over to, we didn't know them. I know I know Gay and interviewed him for the book actually, but we didn't. I didn't know Nan, nor did my wife knew her from publishing. She's my publisher at Penguin. She has her own imprint, Nancy Paulson Books, a children's imprint at Penguin. And she just said to her, um, uh, described the book, and Nan said something to the effect of, "Well, get ready for a journey." So it was a journey. But that's what we. That's what I did. And my wife was just great in allowing me to spend all this time. Absorbed in in you know the, the the trenches as it were. You have a chapter on uh, called the Bubba Boomer, uh, talking starting starting off with Bill Clinton, who uh, you talk about represented became a symbol of the perpetually horny, uh, ever prevaricating, irrepressibly optimistic masculinity. Um, it, it seems to something that seems to be continuing to this day. What was going on then? Well, I think you know. I think in the '80s you had these macho, you know, you had Rambo and 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 Rocky and Reagan and and you you know this is the you know this this sense of of virile American power and and I think 
you know, Alan Alda in the 70s and, and you, you didn't have this, you, you know, and men were trying to get in touch with other sides of themselves too. And come the 90s, you had, strangely, this thing that became the Clinton embodied, but also, um, I mean, he, no one was was going out emulating Bill Clinton in ways they were emulating Ronald Reagan, uh, I think. But but I I think there there was this sense there was a, there was a description of the New South magazine called the Oxford American, which started in the nineties, and the Oxford American tried to be quote unquote, or the New York Times described it quote unquote as the sensitive guy at the dogfight, you know, <laughs> and I think that's what many American men were becoming. They they had they had to a a, a address their feminine sides. They had to address being empathetic, sympathetic, loving characters. They had to understand the full... There were many more demands on them to be great fathers, many more demands on them to be um, loving husbands. They began to understand the difficulties of the, the, the consequences of domestic violence. And uh, of you know they had this. There was a new phrase called anger management, which often was directed at men. And with time, you had less time to spend with your buddies, and I think you had therefore had less outlets to understand what it meant to be a man. You had less time if you were growing up to have role models that were male and strong male figures. So men were trying to define themselves more than they had in previous decades, especially in the, in the wake of the sec, of second wave feminism in the 70s. So what's your next project? You, you also write children's books, so that, that sounds like it might be a good uh, change of pace from this. Yeah, I just probably in the middle of it did a book with Nancy called, my wife called, uh, With Any Luck, I'll Drive a Truck, which is still out there and uh, but I don't know. I've, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm still riding this horse of Vanity Fair, and what's happening is, as Graydon uh, decides, uh, uh, he, he's going to be here till the end of the year, and we have, we're, you know, Vanity Fair will be uh, moving forward, and, and I've got to focus on that, and I'm just basking in the in in this. The you know, book was published uh, relatively recently, and I'm really excited to. To see what the future holds with the, with the book and this, and I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to take it, take it, take it. It's 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 a uh, enjoy the ride, and I enjoy talking to you too. Well, we've been talking with David Friend. You can find his book, The Naughty Nineties, in stores right now. David, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rose explains why romance novels would make great films. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm David Handler, the author of The Girl with the Kaleidoscope Eyes, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today our very own Rose Fox is going to talk to us about something that's been um, 
that's been percolating a little bit, and that is why Hollywood should read romance novels. Hello, Rose. Hi, Mark. So uh, thank thank you for giving me a little time to ride my hobby horse here. Uh, I've, I, as you know, I do a lot of work in science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and also in the romance genres. And lately, I've been seeing all of my friends in the science fiction field getting deals for TV and movies, which is great. I'm thrilled to see so many properties being developed for the screen. And I think that George Martin has done us all a huge favor with <laughs> yes. Game of Thrones and, and you know, one summer blockbuster after another about science fiction and wonderful to see The Martian and Arrival and so forth. But I, it does make me wonder why all of my friends on the romance side of things kind of being left in the dust. So that is interesting. You know, when you first brought this up with me, I, I thought, of course, there's movies made after romance novels. And then I thought, well, I, I actually can't name a one. Uh, I mean, there have been uh, movies made after uh, romantic uh, uh, books or books with romance, uh, you know, romantic elements in them. But how, how would you distinguish that? And what would you attribute that to? So when I say romance novels, I'm talking about the genre of romance, which is at its at its heart, and even some parts of this very basic definition are being debated now, but at its heart, as it's currently understood, the romance genre is about people who have a connection, have obstacles to overcome in order to find fulfillment in that connection, who overcome those obstacles and have a happy ending. So that's that's the the core element of it. And you're right that there are certainly many romantic movies, many romantic novels that are made into movies if your name is Nicholas Sparks. And uh, he says he doesn't write right. romance right. novels, right. but <laughs> uh, some of us would beg to differ. But I'm talking about the mass market paperbacks that you find for seven ninety nine dollars uh, that we used to buy at, and drugstore racks. And you can still see some of them even uh, at your at your local Rite Aid. And uh, they sell a lot at Walmart, at big stores like that. And they are everywhere. When we do our announcement issues. We ask publishers to tell us what their first print runs are going to be. And for mass market romances from big names, I will see numbers like 400,000 copies in a first print run and they'll sell out. You know, you will, you will see people selling 400,000 copies of the next book by Eloisa James or mm. uh, Susan Mallory or, you know, right. a, a big name like that, Debbie McComber. And these are names that women across the country and, and these books really are still primarily written by and read by women. Women across the country know these names. They know these series. They will buy 20 book series. They'll have every single one. They will scour uh, their libraries, uh, Goodwill, looking for new books to read. Uh, romance readers are voracious, and they're big, big fans. They're all over social media. They talk to one another. Uh, RWA, the big annual conference of romance writers, not just romance readers, but just romance writers is thousands of people. And every every year, all of these people get together and talk about just creating romance novels. And it's wonderful to be in that atmosphere of people who take romance seriously as a valid genre and a valid form of literary expression, when the rest of the world seems to be quite willing to take those romantic elements, as you say, but shies away from something called romance. So, you know, one criticism might be that, that we've, we've heard from, from those who don't read romance novels that perhaps that they're maybe too simple 
or that they're uh, 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 formulaic, but then aren't so many Hollywood movies. Right. I mean, you know, that has never stopped Hollywood. And in fact, I think some people in Hollywood would see it as a perk that yeah. once you know the tropes that you're dealing with, that it's pretty easy to put them together in some form that your audience will like. And, it, you know, every genre has people who are doing wonderful creative things with it and people who are just cranking it out to the same old formula. And that's true in speculative fiction and mm -hmm. literary fiction, which is a genre and has its forms and its tropes. And it's certainly true in romance that there are people who are very innovative and mm -hmm. then there are people who aren't. And it's just like the oatmeal comfort read. And sometimes what you want is an oatmeal comfort read. And that is perfectly fine. So, you know, thinking about the, the names you had mentioned, Eloisa James, uh, Debbie Maycomber, they, you, you've mentioned contemporary contemporary novels but well Eloisa writes uh, historical romances right so and I was going to ask about the uh, maybe those the bodice rippers uh, yeah the costume dramas right. so if you look at something like Game of Thrones or the Tudors or Downton Abbey you know a lot of this is right. about melodrama and fancy clothes and you can you know add in some dragons and magic or you can add in some <laughs> class differences or whatever flavor right. you want um, you know the, the, the extra drama of royalty, which mostly comes down to the extra drama of you know, people be, who have power over life and death, uh, or, or very significant power over one another. But, uh, you know, for every Jane Austen remake, and there have been some great ones and some terrible ones, but there's no question that there's been a lot of Jane Austen adaptations. She really didn't write many books. And so people just keep making the same ones over and over and over again. But for every one of those, there are a dozen wonderful romance novels set in historical eras, uh, not just Regency England, though that's certainly very popular, that really would do just as well on the screen that have just as many gowns and balls and horses mm -hmm. and just as much witty banter. I mean, if you want great dialogue, you know, I, I will, I will keep citing Eloisa James for the witty banter. Um, Tessa Dare, who I just interviewed on the show a couple weeks ago, uh, has wonderful banter in her, in her books. Uh, or if you want something with a little more drama in it, Joanna Byrne writes romances set during the French Revolution. And there's spies mm. and there's people getting shot and there's love in the midst of danger. And there's all this stuff that is so popular when it does get televised. But I really think that uh, movie makers just have no idea that these books are out there. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, just to name, you've, you've mentioned Eloisa James, uh, for, and just to put you on the spot for any uh, Hollywood scouts that are out there, do any books come to mind that, that just would perfectly, or at least well enough, translate to uh, screen? You know, I, I really have to put in a plug here for Joanna Barnes' books, particularly. Um, they are, uh, the, her dialogue is wonderful. She's fluent in French. And so when she has, uh, characters who are speaking French or who grew up speaking French and are now speaking English, you can really tell, like, that dialogue would translate perfectly. And there's lots of skulking about and daring do and action set pieces, as well as, uh, much romantic swooning. Mm. And the wonderful thing about authors who write series is that you have, 
uh, ongoing characters that people can follow through you know, book after book or episode after episode or film after film. Uh, some of these books and stories would make, uh, you know, just great ongoing, uh, long, long running television series. Uh, if you think of uh, Outlander, for example, which was made from Diana Gabaldon's time travel romance mm-hmm. novels and has been doing very well. Uh, then there, there are lots of long series that are very suited to that. And, uh, and then there are shorter series or even one-off books that, uh, could make great films. So I, I think there's, there's really something out there for everybody. And I don't want to discount contemporaries either. I'm talking about the historicals right. because, yeah, there's, there's just so much glitz and glamour, but there's so many contemporary stories that really touch on themes that matter a lot to people right now. Uh, stories about what happens when uh, someone comes home from Afghanistan with PTSD or mm. with a missing right. limb or uh, stories about what do you do when uh, someone you care about goes to prison or uh, you know, what, what do you do when your teenager gets pregnant? There are all these major real world themes that show up again and again in romance novels because we have to find love right. wherever we are in life and whatever difficulties are going on in life. I've been seeing a lot of books lately that are about going home, uh, adults going home to the, the old hometown um, to help care for aging parents. That's a thing that a lot of people care about right now. And maybe they reconnect with their childhood sweethearts right. while they're there. And many of the tensions that we see on uh, on a larger scale between uh, rural and urban America, for example, or small town and big city America, play out in these books that are very much about rediscovering the values of small towns, rediscovering the people you grew up with who are still kind of annoying and you still remember when they were annoying to you in high school right. and everybody knows everybody and everybody remembers that one time you messed up that you will never, ever, ever forget. But also these are people who saw you grow up, who give you connection to your family, to your heritage. And uh, that's something that I think a lot of people are really yearning for right now. So uh, seriously, Hollywood, take a look at these books. <laughs> Uh, there's there's so much potential there for stories that really grab, I think, both men and women. Uh, there are more men writing and reading romance now, and uh, that makes me makes me very happy. And uh, these are these are really very important stories about love and connection and community, and maybe also some action and drama and glamour while we're there. Rose, this is great. And let's hope the scouts are listening. I hope, I hope they are. <laughs> we can always hope. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another great author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 